two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Son of God, this chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. Now, you may already be aware that during his agony on the cross, it is recorded in the gospel records that our Lord spoke seven times. These seven statements are often referred to as the seven words or the seven sayings on the cross. I think in our Sunday school class about three or four years ago, Brother Mark took us over about three weeks. He took us through these seven sayings on the cross. So I assume that you or many of you are aware of these things, the seven words on the, cro- on the cross. Now, throughout Christian history, these seven sayings or these seven words have been regarded as worthy of special attention and consideration. The last words of any person are usually thought to be of special significance and gravity. Uh, you know that in a court of law, it's not admissible, admissible to use uh, hearsay is evidence. Hearsay are statements that were made outside the courtroom or information that is second-handed information. Those things are hearsay, and they're not allowed in a court of law, but there are a few exceptions to the hearsay rule, and one of those exceptions is a dying declaration. And the reason that's an exception to the hearsay rule is because there is a presumption that people in their last moments when they know that they're going to die or are going to be telling the truth, they're not going to be lying in the things that they say. Last words are all often provide a way to understand what was ultimately important to a person that is dying. Sometimes last words disappoint us in what they reveal about someone. Sometimes the very worst comes out in the end. But many times, a person's last words reveal uh, things that are profound or memorial or treasured by those that hear those last words. I would suggest that these last words of Christ spoken on the cross are the most significant final words that were ever spoken. Though they were brief words, these seven statements are incredible in their content and in their beauty and in their grace. Matthew Henry makes an interesting observation, something that I never thought about. I'm quoting now. He says, quote, One reason that he died the death of the cross was that he might have liberty of speech to the last, and so might glorify his Father and edify those around him. Matthew Henry is saying that dying on a cross enabled our Lord to glorify God and to bless others with his words to the very final moments of his life. Now, these seven words are divided into two groups. Three of these words, the first one, 
the one spoken in the middle of the seven, and the last one are directed to God. The other four are addressed to the people that are there around him during the crucifixion. The three that are addressed to God the Father are, here in Luke twenty three thirty four, our text this morning, Father, forgive them that they know not what they do. The one that was spoken in the middle of the seven from Matthew twenty seven forty six is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The last word of Christ in Luke twenty three forty six is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now the four that were addressed to others are these. Luke twenty three forty three. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. John 19, verses 26 and 27. Woman, behold your son, behold your mother. Then John 19, 28. I thirst. And then John 19, 30. It is finished. Those are the seven words spoken by Christ on the cross. And all these words were spoken during his extreme suffering on the cross. When we describe our own really severe pain, we often use the term excruciating pain. Have you ever used that word excruciating or heard that word? The word excruciating comes from the Latin word to crucify. It literally means to have a pain like the pain of crucifixion. So when we say excruciating pain, we're saying cross pain. That's what we're saying when we use that term. Now we see in the, the three we see the three offices of Christ when we look at the cross. We just read at the end of our text in verse thirty eight, excuse me. <clears throat> we just read at the end of verse thirty eight that there was an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. Words written to mock him, but words that were true. For he was and he is their king. We see here a priest making sacrifice and intersection, intercession. His own blood is the blood of sacrifice. And his prayer is priestly intercession for his people. And we see here a prophet. Christ teaching us wonderful things in these seven last words. Now, God permitting, we will be looking at the seven words of the cross uh, at, during our communion services in the next few months. This morning, God helping us, we want to consider the first word on the cross, which is found in our text in verse 34. Luke 23:34, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. These words are a prayer addressed to his Father. I want us to consider uh, this word from the cross uh, under four questions. First, what are the circumstances? Second, what does he pray? Third, why does he pray? And then fourth, how is his prayer answered? So first of all, the circumstances. At the end of verse 33, we read, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, in the first moments of his crucifixion, Jesus speaks these words. It is about 9 a.m. in the morning. 
Just 12 hours earlier, at about 9 p.m., he was with his disciples in the garden. Shortly thereafter, he is betrayed and he is arrested. At about 2 a.m., he is questioned by Annas, the former high priest, and the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the current high priest. Annas was a leading man among the chief priests and the elders, and his physical abuse begins at this time. A second so-called trial is held about 3.30 in the morning. Caiaphas, the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes have been assembled in the middle of the night, and again he is physically assaulted by these allegedly holy, upright religious men. At 6 a.m. in the morning, there's a third brief trial, and he is almost immediately taken to Pilate. But by 7 a.m. in the morning, Pilate has sent him to Herod so that he can deal with him. Pilate doesn't want to deal with Jesus. He sends him off to Herod. Herod and his men mock him and return him to Pilate. And it is now about 8 a.m. in the morning, and Pilate wishes to release Jesus, but the crowds have gathered, and they incite him to release the criminal Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. Pilate relents and has Jesus severely beaten and brutalized, and he is scourged with a whip. Jesus is now bloody from head to toe. He has cuts all over his body. His face is unrecognizable. At this point, he hardly looks human. Isaiah 52.14 is fulfilled. Isaiah 52.14 says, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. The cross beam of his cross is placed on his shoulders, probably tied to his shoulders and to his arms. And he is led by the soldiers towards Golgotha, which is about 650 yards away. Jesus, weak from no sleep and from the trauma of his beatings and the loss of blood, struggles to carry his cross, and Simon of Cyrene is compelled by the soldiers to carry it for him. At 9 a.m., the soldiers take his clothes, and Jesus is laid on top of the crossbeam, which is on the ground, and nails, which are really more like small spikes, seven to nine inches long, are driven into his wrist, securing him to the beam. The beam is then lifted up and placed on a slot at the top of the cross, and his feet are nailed into place, securing him to the cross. He's now completely naked, you know, in our pictures that we see, our artwork. You know, Christ has this thing around his waist, but that's not the way that it was for him. He is now completely naked, mutilated, and crucified, a horrible public spectacle. He will live another six hours on the cross until his death at about 3 p.m. It is now in these very first moments of his final humiliation and agony, that he speaks this first word from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It was not uncommon for victims of crucifixion to speak. 
what would normally be the scene. They would, they would curse, they would cry out, they would scream, they would curse their tormentors. They would plead for some kind of relief. They would proclaim their innocence and the injustice of what was happening to them. But what we hear coming from the lips of Jesus is something very different from all of that. We hear the words of intercessory prayer. Now, this is in direct fulfillment of Scripture. Isaiah, again, in chapter 53, verse 12, says this, He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. And that is exactly what our Lord does with these first words. He intercedes for the transgressors. Now, those were the circumstances of these words. Let me make just a few observations about the circumstances. We see in this the glory of Christ in his constant obedience and fidelity. Jesus had taught his disciples in Matthew 5, 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now we see Jesus perfectly setting the example for us. And there's a lesson for us in this example. We are to live by biblical principles and be Christians no matter how difficult and severe our circumstances are. Hardship and affliction do not suspend or exempt us from godly Christian living. And we see that in the example here. Of our Lord. And in the same way, we can see that God wants us to glorify Him and serve Him until the very end of our lives. We see that in the circumstances of our Lord Jesus. In John 13, 1, we read, When Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. That is what we see in this word from the cross. Now, there is more we can learn from this first word of the cross. We see something in Christ that if we could grasp it and hold on to it, would change our hearts and would strip from our character and our personality some of the ugly things that are there. Let's consider this second question. What does he pray? He prays, Father, forgive them. We might have expected him to invoke judgment on those who had proved themselves to be the enemies of God. It would not have been unrighteous for him to do so. In the book of Psalms, there are at least ten imprecatory psalms. That is, psalms in which the psalmist calls on God to destroy his enemies. For example, Psalm 69 has this kind of language in it. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out from the book of the living. That's the kind of language that we see in the Psalms. And let me remind you 
that those words were inspired by God. They were inspired to David by the Spirit of Christ. Wouldn't this of all times have been the right time for those kinds of words? But we must remember, why is the Lord Jesus Christ there? What is the point of his suffering? Why is he hanging on a cross? He is there for the sake of forgiveness. And so he prays, Father, forgive them. A day is coming when Christ, the judge of the world, will not only speak imprecatory words, but he will also bring those words to sober reality for all the enemies of God. But it is not this day. It is not the day that he is on the cross. This day is about the forgiveness of sin. And so he prays, Father, forgive them. Let me make a few observations about these words. He is not dealing here with personal forgiveness. That is, the forgiveness that we have between two people. These words are not about the personal offense that he has received from those that have so cruelly handled him. If that's what it was about, he could have simply said, I forgive you. But Jesus has something very different in mind. He is concerned about the souls of those that have sinned against him. He is concerned about their relationship with God, who is their judge. He is concerned about the severe condemnation that they will receive because of this most horrible sin. They have sinned against him personally, yes. But they have sinned against God. Do you remember what David said when he had fornicated with Bathsheba and then murdered her husband in Psalm 51.4. David says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. We see a similar concern expressed by Stephen when he is being stoned to death in Acts chapter 7, verses 59 and 60. It says there, and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said that this, he fell asleep. Stephen was not concerned about the consequences of what was happening to him. He was concerned about the consequences of this sin for them, that is, those that were his murderers, consequences that would come to them from the hand of God. And so he prays for his murderers. He says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Dear ones, I would suggest to you that if we can have this godly perspective towards those that sin against us, the attitude that we see in Christ and that we see in Stephen, It will deal with much of the resentment that so often festers in our heart and plagues our mind and destroys our peace and our happiness. If our great concern is that these people who have done us wrong are going to stand before God, if our great concern is for the day of judgment, which will most certainly come, if if our great concern is for their forgiveness then we are a very different person than the person who is concerned about revenge or getting even or putting people in their proper place or exposing them or being vindicated. 
when we're in circumstances like Stephen or our Lord, what is the ultimate thing that really troubles us about these people who are sinning against us? Is it, because, is it for the hurt and the loss and maybe the embarrassment that we have suffered? Or is our concern about those people, is our concern that these people by their actions are maybe revealing that by what they have done, that they are not true Christians at all and that they will perish if they don't receive forgiveness from God. Now, this is the mind of Christ. It is not Jesus who is the one to be pitied. It is not Jesus who is in mortal danger. It is not Jesus who needs to be prayed for. Jesus is saying in these words, these are the people who are to be pitied. These are the people who are in mortal danger. These are the people who need to be prayed for. And when he prays, Father, forgive them, he is revealing that they are in danger of something that is worse than death, even death on a cross. Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. May God give us grace to think like Christ when we are faced with these things. Our Lord says, Father, forgive them. Now, our third question is, why does he pray? Why does he pray? Our text says, for they know not what they do. Now, this is a very interesting statement. What is meant by the words, for they know not what they do? Certainly, the religious leaders know that they have falsely accused Jesus. Certainly, those that, that spat on him and beat him for no reason know that they are doing something wrong. Certainly, Annas and Caiaphas and Pilate and Herod know that this is an innocent man. What then does it mean they know not what they do? Some have suggested that Jesus is looking for something to alleviate the horrible guilt of what is happening, something to lessen the guilt of this, the greatest of all sins. That may be the case. Let me suggest another answer to the question, what does he mean, for they know not what they do? If you know your Bible well, you're aware that the Scriptures distinguish between sins on the one hand that we commit in our general depravity and sinfulness, sins done in carelessness and foolishness and thoughtlessness, sins of the moment, sins committed uh, when we're caught up in our emotions and our lust, and on the other hand, sins that we commit very specifically with full knowledge of what we're doing, premeditated sin intentional, arrogant, defiant sin. There are sins that we commit with some level of ignorance, and, and these are those sins that we, that we truly and fully know not what we do. There are sins, though, that we fully understand. We've been taught we know better, and we still go into it. Now, all sin is serious and has eternal consequences, but there is a special weight and seriousness to the consequences that attach to sins which are committed with our full understanding, in total disregard of known truth, and in open, wide-eyed rebellion against God. 
The Old Testament refers to it this way, Numbers chapter 15, verse 30. But the person who does anything with a high hand reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off. Deuteronomy 17, 12. The man who acts presumptuously, that man shall die. Psalm nineteen thirteen. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins, sinning with a high hand. We see this in the New Testament as well. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 and 27, we read these words. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, in contrast to that deliberate sinning for which there is no remedy, Peter preaching in Acts chapter 3 to the men of Jerusalem, the very same leaders, the very same men that were in the crowds that were involved in the Lord's crucifixion just 50 days earlier, he's preaching to those same people, and he says this in Acts chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, But you denied the Holy and Righteous One, and ask for a murderer to be granted to you, and you kill the author of life whom God raised from the dead. And then in verse 17 he says, Now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. The rulers and the people were vile, wretched, and cruel sinners against the Lord Jesus, but they did not grasp the full truth of what they were doing, that they were literally putting to death the Son of God. Paul uses this kind of language in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 8 when he says, None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. It's interesting that in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, Paul applies this kind of language to himself. He says in 1 Corinthians 1, 13, Formerly, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Because he did not believe that Jesus was the Christ, there was in his actions against Christ and Christ's church an ignorance of the full significance of what he was doing. Now let me be clear about that ignorance that we're talking about. That not, not fully understanding the depths of the matter does not mean that our sin needs no atonement or that it has no guilt or that it does not need to be forgiven. In fact, Paul, who says in verse 13, I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, says just two verses later, in verses 15 and following, he says this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save his sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Jesus Christ, I am the foremost, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul sinned in the ignorance of unbelief, but even so, he was the chief of sinners and in need of saving mercy from Christ. It would appear 
that the significance of sinning in ignorance is that it makes sin forgivable. This is not so for deliberate sin for which there remains no saving sacrifice. Now here's a sober warning for each of us that these words from the cross bring. All sin, every sin contributes to the hardening of a heart, of our heart and the searing of our conscience. And it is one step closer to sinning with a high hand, Numbers 15, or presumptuously, Deuteronomy 17, or deliberately, Hebrews chapter 10. And that is a place that we never want to be. And if you're not a Christian, this is a special warning to you. The greatest of all sins is not to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. God has warned you every time you've heard the gospel. He warns you at Christmas and Easter and Thanksgiving when even the unbelieving world reminds us of Christ with our holidays that we celebrate. How many times have you heard about Christ and sin and the gospel? And God is warning you now. But dear ones, the time will come when believing, when not believing in Christ will no longer be a sin of ignorance, but will be sinning with a high hand. And it will be deliberate sin against your knowledge of the truth. And it will be sin with no remedy. That is why the book of Hebrews pleads with us in chapter 4. It says, today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Let's consider our fourth question. Is his prayer answered? Well, we know that God always answers the prayers of his son, so a better question is probably to say, how is his prayer answered? We see his prayer begin to be answered immediately. We're told by Matthew and Mark in their Gospels that the two thieves reviled and mocked him. But here in Luke's Gospel, we see that sometime before noon, sometime in the next couple of hours, one of them repents and is forgiven. We see that in verse 42 and in verse 43 here in Luke 23. Verse 42, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in, in paradise. This is a fulfillment of this prayer that Christ has prayed. Then at about 3 o'clock, we see that the centurion is believing in Christ. Again, in our text here in Luke chapter 23, we see it in verse 47. It says, now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. Listen to these words in Mark's account, Mark 15, 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, his last he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Also note in our text here in Luke 23 that there's a dramatic change in the crowd. Look at verse 48. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breast. There's a dramatic change in these people who just a few hours earlier 
were screaming and shouting uh, for his life, that his life be taken. And then there is an incredible fulfillment of this prayer in the books of, book of Acts. Please turn over with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Look with me at verses 22 and 23. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you know yourselves. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. When Peter says, you crucified him, and you killed him, he does not mean you generically, or you as in somebody. He meant, speaking to these people that are before him, you were in the secret councils. You were in the illegal trials. You were in the crowds. You wanted Barabbas and not Jesus. You wanted his blood. You personally were involved. Now look down at verse 37 here in Acts 2. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off and everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And so we see here the, the prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ being fulfilled in a dramatic way. 3,000 souls on this day. These same people were cut to the heart. What did Peter tell them? He told them to repent. And to repent for what? For the forgiveness of their sins. Our Christ, our Lord prayed on the cross, Father, forgive them. And so here it is. Now, it doesn't stop here. Look down at verse 47 at the end of the verse. It says, And the Lord added to their number day by day those that were being saved. Every day more and more people were receiving the forgiveness of their sins. And what about the religious leaders? Is Christ's prayer answered in them? Look over at chapter 6 and verse 7 here in Acts. Acts chapter 6 and verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And then note these words. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ being answered. Let me close with two observations about the prayer of Jesus being answered. The first is this. When we pray, 
for the enemies of Christ. That is, for any person that's an unsaved person, an unconverted person. We can have real hope that God will hear our prayers and that they will come to faith and repentance and know the forgiveness of sins. Are the people that you pray for, the people that you long to be saved, are they in a worse state than the priest that spit on Jesus and smashed him in the face? Are they worse are they in a worse state than those who cried, let his blood be on us and our children? Prayer for the salvation of sinners can be dramatically answered. Keep praying the words of this prayer for the cross for them. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It is a prayer that God can and does answer. But second, I want you to consider with me this encouragement. The prayer of Christ for us is our hope. The scriptures are clear that Christ was on the cross for the sake of all that the Father had given him to save. This was happening so that Christ might bring many sons to glory, to use the language of Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10. I suggest that every Christian put Christ on the cross. And here on the cross, Christ, our great right. Our great high priest has already started his intercession for his people on the basis of his sacrifice for sin. Believer, this prayer, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, includes you and includes me and all that believe in our Lord Jesus Christ. How do you know that you will be safe and saved tomorrow and the next day and on and on every day until you arrive safe in glory. Well, here's how you know. It is because, it is because Christ prays for you and his pray, prayers are always answered by his Father. How do you know that God will keep on forgiving you? Because as long as we live, every one of us is going to continue to sin and to do things that would separate us from God. We are not perfect yet. But here's what the scriptures say. Romans 8:34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He is right now, present tense, interceding for us, and because he is, we can never be condemned. Hebrews 7.25 says it this way, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is saving us completely. He is saving us perfectly. He is saving us utterly because he ever lives to pray for us. Jesus continues that prayer spoken in the first word from the cross. He continues to say, Father, forgive them. And we are forever safe in Christ who always lives to pray this prayer for us. I hope as a Christian that you think that's a wonderful thing. Praise God that at his right hand sits one that prays this prayer for us at all times. Now, in just a moment, we're going to come to the Lord's table. 
Does this first word of the cross have anything to do with our coming to the table this morning? We are here and we're able to come because at some point in our life, God answered the prayer of Christ and forgave our sins. That is why we come to the table this morning. So let us do it with this first word of the cross in our mind, in our hearts. Now, before we come to the table, let's have a word of prayer.